Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Welcome everyone to the This Believe Land is Your Land, where we are uh, joined by our special uh, host of the day, Mark Sessler. We're very excited to have Mark on. Um, for those of you who are dialing in and are listening at the end of the week, uh, it's, been, it's been a great week. It's been a great season. And uh, I honestly think that we might be riding the highest crest of a, of a wave here as Cleveland sports fans that we've seen, not, not uh, Cavs related, probably in our lifetime. Um, the optimism that we're seeing around town and around the uh, social media universe is uh, staggering, and um, I literally appreciate the fact that I can open any any form of social media feeds and be greeted with nothing but uh, ridiculously positive messages on uh, quarterback ratings and DVOA and uh, anything else that you're looking for. It's it's a it's a wonderful time to be a Browns fan. So there's no better time to be uh, recapping with one Mark Sessler. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to be here, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean. Working here um, at the NFL newsroom, you're always around like 50 or 60 people that are watching everything that's happening. And it's been like eight or nine years that I've been here of just people laughing and dumping on the Browns. And I think the nadir of that was when the whole Manziel drama hit. And now we have a quarterback who is the anti-Manziel. And people are, they're, they're sort of just stunned silence at what they're doing now. And I like that stunned silence. <laughs> I got into, uh, I got into following you in the first place because I like that amongst like the, uh, the, the NFL talking heads, there was one guy who at least like understood what we were going through. Um, and you, you were definitely kind of a, a totem for Cleveland sports in that kind of a way. Um, how did you find yourself writing about uh, the NFL in general and, and writing about sports? Well, I'm 45. So there's been a lot of back and forth, but when I was, Back in high school, long before social media or anything, like I, I kept, got sort of every sports writing newspaper job I could get at our local paper. I grew up in Connecticut and it was a weekly paper and they let me write about um, absurd things like gymnastics that I'd never watched <laughs> before. And, you know, it started with anything I could get. And um, eventually I was on the football team and found very quickly that writing about them was much more of a service to them than anything I was doing for <laughs> them on the field. So like, uh, I kind of ended that career to no one's dismay. And from there, kind of went right into college with this like deep desire to write about sports and stuff. But then I kind of got off that path and wanted to be more of a, like a novelist. You know, I was young, thought that would be easy. I'd accomplish that without any problems. That did not happen. But um, you're in DC. I floated actually down to DC my college year uh, at American. And oh, okay. we, I was, my plans were to go from Washington, DC. Um, this was around 94 when they were awesome under Belichick, the Browns, I went to a little Browns bar every week and enjoyed that season. And I thought the next year they were going to go to the Super Bowl, and I was going to graduate and go whatever it took, go join the Browns organization. And then bang, six months later, they've moved to Baltimore. And so oh, it no. kind of set, yeah, right? So it kind of set me off on this whole different journey where I got away from sports and sports writing until um, 
here in LA when I came here to do screenwriting, got back into sports when I basically found myself in a bunch of corporate jobs and learned that NFL Network, which was in walking distance of my apartment, had like these part-time editor's roles back in 2010. So I took that and um, it's kind of rolled from there, just like opportunities. I guess we kept finding uh, myself and Dan Hansis, who's on our podcast as well, we joined at the same time. And I think we both feel kind of lucky because it's like we're worked really hard, but it was good timing. Like if had I moved to St. Louis or, you know, uh, Dallas, I would not be doing this. I don't think so. Wow. I'm glad that we finally got the, uh, the, the genesis of how that all came to be because yeah. I've, I've, I actually found uh, Dan through his other podcast, through the, uh, the throwback podcast, listening to the music reviews, which I think is a great podcast. Yep. Everybody should check out. And I know uh, you were featured on that through one of the earlier Coldplay episodes. Yeah, uh, that they did over there. So, so that was great. Um, and I know through through uh, following Cleveland sports, uh, we've all kind of crossed paths with you at some point. So it's it's great to to uh, get together and have this this chat about where we are now. So, so speaking, of, uh, speaking of disservice to your team, Mark. Uh, so tell us about your thoughts regarding Hugh Jackson's departure from Cleveland and uh, arriving in Cincinnati. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was um, a very Hugh Jackson-esque move to wind up in Cincinnati <laughs> two weeks later or whatever it was. I really wanted to like him. Like when he showed up in Cleveland and they had that clip on the team site of him walking into the complex and everyone greeting him with open arms. And I, I back then, his Q rating was much higher. I thought this is a guy that knows how to do design offenses and work with quarterbacks. And to me, the pedigree seemed in place. And I know that he took over a, a team with a plan that was going to be very rough for a head coach. And it was, I don't blame the Haslam's for giving him a third year uh, personally, just because, I think they were trying to not once again show that, hey, we'll be the guys that blow up the machine every two seasons. But they learned, you know, I think in due time that, you know, he just, he, there's too many power struggles. There were too many leaks. And it's a, sort of, a, you know, into, not to kill him personally. I think he's a good person. Like I, these players seem to like him, but it's, it just wasn't a fit. And it was a Peter Principle scenario, I think, in terms of coordinator effectiveness, the head coach effectiveness. And just to see how much more organized the team seems to be uh, top to bottom with someone named Greg Williams, who I never thought would be in that role either. It's kind of <laughs> remarkable. So I love that reference to the Peter principle. That's a good one. Yeah. I, mean, I like I think the... if, if it fits him well, you know, and I probably it probably does fits, uh, all of us in some way or another, but it's, it, it, he just couldn't handle the larger role of it in the ego. I think, I think of it as well. Yeah. And I don't think there's a better way that that could have played out either than um, you really get to, um, you really get a six game sample size with the exact same players, exact same management, exact same quarterback to be able to draw the direct comparison and say, you know, we have the exact same people in place. Why is the product so much different now? And then you get to live through watching that exact same impact right down the street with the division rival. I think that if you really have all your chips pushed into the middle of the table and you believe that Hugh Jackson uh, failed in Cleveland because of who Hugh Jackson is, and you should be delighted that he is going to walk down that exact same path with, with another team. Uh, and, and, and have the same situation play out. You should love that you are, are seeing the rest of the season play out without him at the tenth home. I think for me, like the number one change was the protection of the quarterback, which reminds me a little bit. Um, that's, that, seems to, that seems to be something you can impact when you make coordinator and staffing changes. And the, the fact that they still have many of the same players, I mean, I mean oh, to, to a man, and that, he, that Baker Mayfield has been so free to roam and has so much time in the pocket, uh, it is an indictment of whatever was going on before. I mean, it really is. And they'll have to live with that because they, it's a job and you fail and either the, he grows from it or not. But, he, you know, the same sort of thing happened in Oakland when he 
sent a bushel of draft picks to the Bengals for Carson Palmer and then was in Cincinnati six months later. It just seems like a little bit of a deep CIA operation almost. <laughs> you're, not, you're not the first person to draw the deep sea uh, sleeper cell, Hugh Jackson right. reference. Um, but you weren't, you're also not the first person to be drawing comparison to uh, the throws and how they made life easier on Baker Mayfield after he moved over. You just you saw a lot of people uh, clamoring for a, a more cogent offensive game plan that would get the ball out of his hand quicker and also give him options to be able to get rid of it in the face of a blitz. It just didn't seem like earlier in the season – Baker had a lot of options that didn't involve waiting for plays to develop long downfield, guys, you know, running out of the boundary. And it was a gripe that a lot of fans had from the previous two years that when you looked at the advanced, the advanced stats, we were throwing really crazy, uh, hard-to-complete routes to receivers that weren't very good and expecting magic to happen on that kind of stuff. So immediately what we saw with, with Kitchens in the first couple of weeks was, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of easier throws in the face of these blitzes but you also saw that when they had to go to some of those bigger throws that Baker was very capable of making them and that defenses weren't sitting on those. This week really featured a lot of those. I think that every week we get three or four, wow, I can't believe a rookie is making these kind of plays throws. Uh, and this week was, was absolutely no exception. What did, what did you see this week that, that kind of said, I can't believe we're watching a rookie quarterback at play here? I think there's a couple things at play because we watch how the Panthers – uh, went right down the field and scored. And that was a team that was desperately trying to save their season and get out of a four-game losing streak. And so how do the, the Browns respond? Because we're very accustomed to seeing the Browns sort of fold the tent when someone does that. And you've got another, you know, 55 minutes of awful football ahead of you. This team came out so aggressively. And I thought it was interesting that the broadcast crew basically said they were told by Freddie Kitchens during the week, we are going to fire the ball downfield on the first play of the game. And they, and they did it, and, we, you know, they've tried that before, too, and it simply just doesn't work. That 66-yarder to Brashad Perriman. By the way, they're making something out of Brashad Perriman. That's what's happening when you've got all of this working together. That throw st uh, stuck out for me. I thought the arm strength and the accuracy on that and sort of just the boldness to, c to complete the task. It's a very rare sight. And mm -hmm. we can talk about that, or I can go through the, the other throws uh, as well. There were, there were quite a few of them, I thought. <laughs> Well, I just want to jump in that I saw a quote from uh, Ogan Joby just yesterday, and I commented on Twitter just about Baker's leadership and the fact that there's no there's no die in Baker Mayfield. He's a dog. He, he fights to the end, and he's a true leader. And I think it really pointed at, and I pointed this out as well last night, it, it points to Alonzo Highsmith's assessment of Baker Mayfield and the reason, the, 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 the one separating reason why we drafted him was his efficacy and his leadership. And I think he, to your point, Mark, you saw that on, you know, after the first drive, you saw that coming back from, from being down most of the game. And uh, I, I think to, to your point, we're making something out of Richard Perryman. And there's also a case to be made or a debate to be made about, you know, are the players actually stepping up and, and helping Baker or is Baker just have this effect on, on players as well? I think it's a little bit of both, but a lot of the latter. I mean, it just seems like these same, this same sort of cast of characters with one of the previous Browns quarterbacks, I, I wouldn't, I don't think they'd be operating at this level. And, you know, you saw that, I forgot which game it was, but there was a game where Baker Mayfield sprinted down the field for like a 35 yard scramble and then got walled by a defender and got right up and got in his face. This was a month plus ago. And mm -hmm. it was, that's the kind of play that gets NFL defenders on your own team fired up. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's been just as many players on defense that have come out to say, we believe in this guy. And for so many years, if the defense was even mildly serviceable in Cleveland, you couldn't get on board with the offense. And you had to imagine there was infighting because they just weren't supporting each other. And now the two 
sides of the ball seem to have sort of a symbiotic relationship and a similar attitude. And that's why I think they're fun to watch because it's not like it's one side or the other. They're very balanced. Yeah, I, I think it was great that this last week you saw some really Browns kind of moments. You saw the two receiver fumbles on the wrong right. side of the field. And, and internally you just want to be like, oh, Samuel Browns, of course this is going to be the thing that sends them down the death spiral. But you're right, it's a symbiotic relationship. The defense immediately stepped up. I think in both those situations they held the other team to a field goal and they said, you know what, like we're going to make up for it. And, and that came, comes back to what Ogunjobi had to say is we knew we were going to come back and win that game. We knew that when we got the ball there at the end, it was going to be different. And there's just that sense and that vibe. And I don't know if, um, you know, playing some, uh, some more teams that are at the Texans level uh, takes the starch out of their sails a little bit. But right now, I think that this is the most confidence I've ever seen a Cleveland Browns uh, team play with. And it's definitely affecting a lot of those role players. I don't think that a Brashad Perriman is going ballistic in a 2015-2016 year. I don't think that he's catching everything that's thrown at him. I think that all the role players are really step up, stepping up. And, and a lot of that is, is Mayfield. And a lot of that is just the vibe and the energy. But I, I do believe that um, John Dorsey's done a good job of acquiring some talents that, regardless of the year and the situation, will be playing really well. And I think we really saw that earlier on in the year. I really like um, the impact that Nick Chubb has had. I think that it's incredible seeing uh, just the difference from week to week of what happened going from Hyde to Chubb. But I think that uh, a lot of the Browns' offensive players uh, have really stepped up this year. Um, talk to us a little bit about non-Baker players that, that have surprised you, that have kind of come out of the woodwork and, and, and really put up numbers and produced. I mean, there's a reason that they're calling this Denver game sort of the rookie class of the AFC versus the rookie class of the AFC because they both really changed the complexion of their teams with who they brought in. And mm -hmm. I remember when a lot of people were making fun of John Dorsey as this old, you know, hokey football guy that's sort of an counter opposite to Sashi Brown and an organizational sign that they've given up on what was their mantra for two years. But he kind of just knows how to build a football team. Look at the Chiefs. He had a big hand in that. And I love right away that he brought in guys like for me when I what the list that I put together on, on offense to start that really that beyond Nick Chubb I think number one a, a holdover Joel Batonio's had an awesome season Absolutely. and he quietly has done that because it's like I don't think it's as easy when you're in any business in any situation where you had Joe Thomas next to you as the obvious sort of adult and leader that he had to take over that role and spend half of summer being told you're going to play left tackle and then you're back inside you know a lot of transitions you never hear him complain and he's mm -hmm. graded out beautifully sort of week after week. Jarvis Landry, I think, has started to, in this new Freddie Kitchens world, become what we thought. And I love the way they used him as a runner in the last game. And they're just so deceptive. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's being used that way is a sign that sort of everyone's an all-in. I'll do whatever role you want. Um, David Njoku I, is sort of hot and cold. But when he's hot, you feel like they have this guy that is a physically imposing downfield tight end pass yeah. catcher. And when it, he seems to work pretty well with Mayfield, too. He made a couple big grabs last week. Uh, I Also another guy, J.C. Treader, who I think is underrated, the fact that he's been playing injured during this stretch where there's been no sacks week after week. It's hard to do. I, it's like you can sometimes probably barely walk from Tuesday to Friday. And he gets back in there. And there have been a lot of little role players. I mean, beside the fumble last week, there are moments where I think that Rashard Higgins might actually be a guy they can count on down the road, but then it kind of goes away. And I think there's a lot of, it's such a young roster that we'll find out again next year if they, if, you know, in theory, if they were to keep Kitchens around and you have another year for this offense versus everyone switching schemes every two or three seasons, if not less, um, you're going to see more growth from the young players. It's like that we finally are seeing player development post Hugh Jackson. And that was the big indictment I had on them is like good teams like the Steelers, they seem to, 
grow a wide receiver every two seasons that becomes a star. And yeah. Cleveland would go years drafting players high, and then they'd vanish like Corey Coleman. Uh, so it's like we're seeing players develop, and it's Mayfield, Chubb, Denzel Ward. I mean, the, where they are at the end of, near the end of the first rookie season is pretty in, incredible. Yeah, and I caught myself thinking about that in regards to Antonio Callaway, exactly what you're describing. I can't remember a wide receiver that came out and had trouble at the beginning of their season or beginning of their career that ever just got it together. And over the last three or four games, Antonio Callaway settled in. He's made tough catches. He's made big splash plays. And he just seemed like all of the things that characterized the earlier part of the season for him just got washed away. Like he got settled into who he was as a player. And you saw him develop. And you saw them starting to use him in ways that um, were good for him. And the same can be, be said about Njoku. So I think that those are great points. Yeah, it's, uh, I did have someone in our office who works on the college side come up after uh, Antonio Callaway had that beautiful catch but then fumbled the ball against mm. the Texans at the goal line and said, that's Antonio Callaway. But they just have to coach oh. that. I mean, I think yeah. that there's, some, there's so much good there that it's like you can see it. And it's just like, can we string this together for three or four games in a row, much less seasons? Uh, let's jump over to the defensive side. And I was wondering um, who your standouts have been. Just a, a couple of mine so far this year have been Joe, Joe Schobert, I think, that where you maybe have been able to undervalue him coming into this year. It's really hard to do that at this point. He's, he's clearly made himself the leader of this, uh, of this defense, and Greg's empowered him to make all the calls. And there's clearly a clear difference uh, between when he's there and when he's not. And as far as uh, the safeties, I've also been impressed with both the safeties, you know, in particular uh, Demarius Randall, especially John Dorsey's job in, in turning a, an asset like Kaiser into a starting free safety for potentially many years to come. Uh, so who, who have your guys been that, that have really stood out to you? Those guys all check out for me. And I, I think Randall is, is an example of uh, the front office, and it's not just it's not just Dorsey. The front office understanding their own roster well enough to say, we've been here somewhere before. We know a player that maybe would not be long for the Packers, but he fits here. And he's, you know, and even the whole thing with the Cavs where I thought this could go south because he's rubbing Cleveland the wrong way back during basketball season. But now sure. they love him because he's doing it for Cleveland. So it's uh, him. I think, I think Ogan Joby's been, uh, you know, a guy that you don't, people don't really sometimes see line play and he's, he's been excellent. Uh, I flashes from Jannard Avery too, where he, he's someone, they have all these young players dotted all over the place. And I mean, Miles Garrett, obviously it's like one thing that we know that Miles Garrett is, is a productive star, but at the same time, it, it's like last game, I think he had like seven disruptions. He's constantly toiling with, with linemen and throwing them by the side and getting into the quarterback. Garrett to me, I think it's, we're going to get one of these games at some point where he has four sacks and they just wind up with 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 the title it's like he's that kind of guy where like i i I think we're only starting to see you know two-thirds of what he can be that there's still a long way to go with miles garrett and he's got the captain's jersey for a reason i think he's the perfect leader for them and when you start to nail these drafts one two three times in a row that can turn an nfl team around very very quickly because you have low you have a lot of salary cap left to put in the right veterans to lace around the young roster yeah, and uh, and and speaking, come, talking about Randall and, and and how quickly he you know endeared himself to Cleveland fans. I think that regardless of what he does, if he left after the season in a trade or if he leaves after next year, everyone will remember for a decade him walking the ball over to Hugh Jacks on the sideline after that. <laughs> You're absolutely right. He can't Inev- sense of the moment, you know. Yeah, inevitably stretch uh, sketch in every every single player's mind or every single fan's mind. 
Um, so I'm sure you've heard the, the, the jokes about uh, the Brown Stadium, Cleveland Brown Stadium being referred to as the Factory of Sadness, um, based <laughs> off of a famous Mike Polk video. Um, we're going to have to rename that if this team continues to play well and be fun. If you had to come up with some kind of a nickname, if you had to come up with some idea that you, you've thought of for, for, for the stadium, what would you want to call it? Well, this is a, I don't want to give a boring answer, but I, I want to go back to the days of tradition when it was Cleveland Municipal Stadium, and it was Ooh. the toughest place to play in the NFL, and people have forgotten about that. I think it's funny because I had someone else here who covered the game on a Sunday who came up and said that stadium was so loud, and it always they've always filled it even when they were a dark mess, but now that they have something to cheer about, I think that the, that crowd is a factor. And I've never really felt that way about that stadium outside of a few moments in 2010 when they whiplashed the Patriots, I think 34 to 10 or something. And back in 2007, when they had that run, there's been very few moments. And in fact, it's the place where they booed Tim Couch when he was injured way back in the day. So not, not a bright I, moment I, in our history. No, it's like that. That's a, a, not a good moment. And the, you know, I mean, Bottlegate happened there, which I quite like Bottlegate, actually. There was a reason to throw those bottles. But sure. it's, it's, it's a raucous place when it wants to be. And uh, the only thing I would do is strip away the somewhat cheesy uh, dog pound collage by the end zone. Like, let it be what it was in the old days, which was just a bunch of drunken rowdies. And they didn't have any – it didn't need to look a certain way. It was just ugly. Like, that old state – I mean, I, I don't know if you guys ever went there. I went there when I was young once, and it blew my mind. It was like – a true palace of, uh, they called it the Palace of Pandemonium, and it was that. And they're getting back to those roots. So I would just go back to the old name and say, let's forget the 30 years in between. I love absolutely. it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that too. And I guess let's, let's just continue down the nickname path. We've been, uh, we want to get your thoughts on this. This is a slightly cheesy nickname that we all come to, to love quite a bit. We've been trying to, to get it to become a thing uh, in Brown's Twitter, and that is the, uh, the Chubbernaut uh, for Nick Chubb. And we want, we want to talk about Nick Chubb's rookie season as well, but we want to get your thoughts on the nickname. I think, you know, he's got an interesting last name that you can go in a lot of directions with. Um, <laughs> I think what you want is you want to get his sign off. So my right. sign off is, I, I think it's, I like it, but you need to get him to say, this is, uh, we can roll with this before he's tagged with a nickname he doesn't want. Um, to me though, I like it. It's got a, it's a lot you can do with it. Yeah, that's a good take because you don't want to you don't want to know Dell Beckham situation where halfway down the pike everyone he, he's saying, "Hey, I'm OBJ, I'm not ODB, get it straight." Like, you definitely <laughs> so don't want to have to fall out. Right, so confusing, and I can't wait to see Chubb versus Chubb on Saturday night. I think that's got to be an NFL, if not a sports first. So, <laughs> a little Chubb on Chubb action, right? So, right, talk, exactly. speaking of Nick Chubb in his rookie season, I mean, how, how special do you think he's been? Um, and, and the rookie class, but just overall as, as, a, as a running back um, rookie season. What, what are your thoughts on Nick Chubb? Well, I like Highsmith's Jamal uh, Lewis comparison. I think it fits. You know, we had a chance to see him on it with Cleveland in 2007, but we also saw Jamal Lewis uh, essentially break the single-game rushing record against the Browns back when Butch Davis was trying to, to coach the team, which was a total – I was with my family – and I'd gathered like oh, no. family members at a wedding to come <laughs> watch the Browns, telling them oh, this no. team is going to turn the corner. Come watch them. And they and I sat there horrified watching that game on foot. And I feel like Nick Chubb could do that to another team. So I think the comparison is right. Like he's able to get you. He, you know, there's some backs where it's like they're they're big play or they're going to get stuffed for a yard or two on their next seven runs. He is productive on every run. I think he's grown as a pass catcher. He's certainly exceeded 
whatever they thought coming out of college he could be. He's a perfect Cleveland Brown. He fits so well. I thought there was that play last week where he and Mayfield did the little Statue of Liberty where I thought these two are perfect for each other. And Chubb is perfect Cleveland Brown. And uh, his big playability, he's, you know, this is, this is a big play offense right now. And it's not just the passing game. It's the ground game because he rips off these big runs almost every week. And it tends to be right at the point of the game where you're about to break the other team's spirit. And he does that. He's a spirit breaker. And I think yeah. the Browns lacked that for a long, long time. Yeah, one of the things that I've mentioned earlier this season was how we seem to be getting a little bit more of the uh, freshman year at Georgia, Nick Chubb, with that top-end speed that – you know, I didn't expect that. I love Chubb coming out. He, he has such great vision. He makes the most out of those runs. He, he's just a natural runner. But uh, some of these big, long runs that, that he's reached top speeds on, I didn't expect to see that. And uh, I really do think that we're getting the best version of him since, since that year. And, and what a steal if we did, you know, as far as getting him where we did. I credit the front office for, even though they signed Carlos Hyde and had Duke Johnson to say we're always going to get better to position. I know there was a lot of fantasy people freaking out when suddenly there were three backs, and I, I don't really worry about that stuff too much. And, and I actually thought – I'm one of the people that thought that Carlos Hyde looked pretty good early in the season, but then when you see Chubb doing what he's doing, it's like, look, they made the right decision also on getting rid of their free agent. It's like this tells you the front office is not going to get tied to their own decisions and try to like self-manifest themselves as being right when there's something better out there. That's how you change and grow as a team. They haven't had that this century. So that's a nice sign. I agree. I agree completely. Um, I think you already kind of tipped your hand a little bit on the next question. Um, and I know uh, time is valuable here, so we'll, we'll, we'll use this as our, our outro. But um, Freddie Kitchens and Greg Williams and their future with this team, we, we've tried to intentionally and very deliberately wait until we have more data to kind of take a stance on, on where, where these guys fit in beyond the season. We set up front. It's, it's a very different situation when you're playing with house money, when there's low expectations and when you are what a, a three and seven or four and seven team when, when they stepped in um, versus when you're entering a season with expectations, like the Browns are definitely going to be next year. Um, I could expect them to have a lot of primetime games and, and be media darlings based on the way that the season's playing out, especially if they manage to win a game or two down the stretch. Um, that being said, Every single week, uh, Freddie Kitchens puts things on tape that tells you that maybe he's up for the challenge, that maybe he's up for the task of, of running an NFL offense, if not here and somewhere. Some of that is just doing the competent thing. Some of it is, you know, giving your rookie quarterback a check down uh, coming out of the backfield. Some of it is not trusting uh, scrap heap left, left tackles and right tackles to hold up under long developing pass routes. Some of it is just doing basic competent stuff. But then you also see stuff like the, uh, the, the, the run pass option that went to Jarvis Landry last week. You see the, 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 the max protect, big bombs that, that, um, that, that are coming out of nowhere. You see a scheme that seems to fit the players that he's working with. And there really isn't much that you need from an offensive coordinator besides a guy who's going to play to the strengths of, the, of his players. How do you feel about including those two guys into the coaching search? And if not the two of them, who are some of the guys that you were really looking for the Browns to, to key in on in that coaching search? They've almost – wiped out my laser focus on someone else. I remember when Chip Kelly was coming into the NFL and he was interviewing with Cleveland. And, you know, now it, now we know what, what that all became. But I was so enthralled with the idea of bringing in Chip Kelly Me too. Me and too. having him be a master innovator. And sometimes, like, the guy you don't get and the guy you sort of fall into is the right thing. And I look at the Colts and Frank Reich and say, 
I think they're better off with Frank Reich than they would have been with Josh Green, or at least they're, they found the right guy for them. And so I, I have no desire to move on from Freddie Kitchens or have Freddie Kitchens directing Baltimore's offense a year from oh, now. Oh, God. Like, right? So it's like <laughs> in Cleveland in any way. And so that brings someone like a Bruce Arians into the conversation. And we know what he said. And I don't know about that either because I want to know that Bruce Arians could do the job for a long time. But I think it would be someone who uh, can run. For, for me, everyone says you got to get this master offensive innovator to be your head coach. I want that guy to be my coordinator. I want the head coach to be an administrator who can deal with all the BS that comes during not just the good times like right now, but when they get into a funk and can deal with that. And, I, and, and, and that to me is a very unpredictable thing because who would have known that Mike Tomlin would have been that guy or John Harbaugh within, their own, within our own division. And so I, I, I really, with these coaching searches, I try not to get locked on one person because they're so unpredictable. I do think when you find a valuable coordinator like Kitchens, you do whatever you can to keep it because the most important thing is the Baker Mayfield relationship. And they seem to really dig each other. And that's so different. I mean, look at big Ben when he was with Arians. Arians was in his wedding party. They're like best friends. And then they essentially fired Arians and went to Todd Haley, who big Ben did not really get along with. Now there's enough talent on the team to make it work, but mm. we don't want to put, you don't want to put your quarterback in that position. Like, if this is working, find a way to make it work. And you have one big piece of the puzzle. I think then you can go find an experienced guy to be your head coach. I, for me, I think the Greg Williams, the preconceived notions about him make it tough to make him your head coach. But if I knew nothing about his past, and I just saw the past couple of weeks and how he deals with sort of everyone, I'd have no problem with it. It's just that sort of, I don't know what the Greg Williams experience is two, three, four years in. I, right now, I can't sign up for Greg Williams, but... I believe that their front office, where there's not a lot of leaks coming out of there, they are talking to a bunch of people. And it's, if it's Lincoln Riley, if it's someone else, if you go change the offense, I, I just you – you know, we'll look back on this season and say what could have been had they kept it. So, Mark, I, I agree 100%. I think this is uh, pounding down the path that I've been uh, commenting on Twitter about and, and keeping Freddie Kitchens and doing what's best for Baker Mayfield. I think those two things go hand in hand. I guess in closing, I know time is valuable, as Josh said. Just really want to thank you for coming on the show and joining us today. It's been an awesome show. Uh, I know our listeners will be excited. Look forward to their feedback. And, yeah, just, uh, you know, have a happy holiday with uh, you and your family. And, uh, again, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it, all three of you. And uh, if they make the playoffs, if that ever happened, let's do it again. Or if we want to do a draft thing or something. I, it's rare that I get to talk with three Browns fans on one show. So it's kind of like I'm at a little Browns backers bar. So. maybe some beers with it next time that sounds good to me yeah thank you guys I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.
I'm Nilay Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts.